And thank you all for being here. It's good to see you on this this beautiful, glorious Sunday. It didn't start out that way, but it's turned into a, a gorgeous day, and I'm glad you decided to venture out and to join with us this morning. It's always good to see you. It's always a joy for me to be here with you. And so welcome once again to, uh, to this place, to this house of God. Scripture lessons this morning, there are two. I'm going to read one from the Old Testament book of Job, and then we're going to read together Psalm 29, responsively out of the hymnal. But let's begin with Job chapter 37 and verse 1. At this also my heart trembles and leaps out of its place. Listen, listen to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. Under the whole heaven he lets it loose and is lightning to the corners of the earth. After it his voice roars, he thunders with, majest- with his majestic voice, and he does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. And then our second lesson, Psalm 29, if you'll look in your United Methodist hymnal with me on page 761, page 761, We're going to read Psalm 29 responsively. We will not use the musical response today, but simply read responsively while you remain seated. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders, the Lord upon many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. The Lord makes Lebanon to skip like a calf, and Sarion like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness. The voice of the Lord makes the oaks to whirl and strips the forest bare. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as ruler forever. is the word of God for the people of God. As we move through this Gifts of the Dark Wood series, I find myself once again drawn for just a little while to Barbara Brown Taylor's book, Learning to Walk in the Dark. First time I read the book, I thought, well, that's, that's okay. And I put it on the shelf, alphabetically, by author, let it sit there for a while. And then I took it down and read parts of it again. And then recently I've read parts of it even for the third time. It rightly deserved that second and third look. So indulge me for just a moment. Let me share a couple of thoughts of hers with you as we consider once again the gifts of the dark wood. She said that learning to walk in the dark is a spiritual skill that some of us could use right now. Darkness packs a different punch for different people. She claims to know nothing of the darkness of living with a chronic illness, or trying to raise a child in a refugee camp. Her eyes work well enough, she said. 
She's never been abused. Her experience of physical darkness does not extend much beyond trying to read a good book by a bad light. If I have any expertise, she writes, it's in the realm of spiritual darkness. Fear the unknown. Familiarity with divine absence. Mistrust of conventional wisdom. Suspicion of religious comforters. Keen awareness of the limits of all language about God. And at the same time, shame over my inability to speak of God without a thousand qualifiers. And I should have said keen awareness of the limits of all language about God. We use the best we have. We use the greatest words we can come up with. And we come up short when we try to describe an awesome and almighty God. She says, doubt about the health of her soul and barely suppressed contempt about those who have such qualms or no such qualms. Maybe you are a young person in deep need of faith right now, but the kind you inherited is not cutting it. Maybe you're in the middle of your life. Maybe your dreams, some of your dreams about God have died hard with your personal experiences. If you are my age, she said, you are losing a lot more things than you once did. Not just your keys and your vision, but also your landmarks and your sense of self. What is the work you have left to do before you enter the great beyond? Clearly, she says, it's time for a walk in the dark. Her book grew out of her own life story. Our stories of the dark wood grow out of our own experiences. Not just what we've heard and read and learned in church, but our own life experiences, wherever life has taken us. Hopefully we've all had some points of connection as we've considered these gifts of the dark wood. On the first Sunday in Lent, we discovered the gift of temptation. How can something that we are taught to avoid at all costs ever be thought about as a gift? But we cannot live our entire lives Avoiding temptation, can we? If we see it as a gift, then we can learn to grow because of it. And we can know that God gives strength in time of temptation, in time of testing. Strength to make the right choices. Strength to choose the best over the better. And every area of our life, even in those gray areas with which we struggle. On the second Sunday in Lent, we considered... I think we did. I'm trying to remember. I'm not really sure. Didn't we consider the gift of uncertainty on that day? <laughs> I'm just kidding, sort of. Uh, the, the gift of uncertainty can be a great aid, can be a great help to us in learning to trust. And on the third Sunday in Lent, we discovered the gift of emptiness. According to Paul, Jesus emptied himself taking on the form of a servant. And only as we empty ourselves can we be filled with the things of God. And when we are filled with the things of God, what stares back at us from the mirror is the image of a servant. Last Sunday, the fourth Sunday, and then we explored the gift of getting lost. If we've never been lost, then we've never known the profound joy of being found. If the prodigal son had never been lost, 
then he would never have understood the depth, the extravagance, the power of his father's love. The gift of being lost. And that brings us to the present moment, the fifth Sunday in Lent. And today's gift of the dark wood is the gift of being thunderstruck. Eric Allen says that this gift was widely recognized as legitimate by ancient folks, but maybe least understood of the gifts in our time. Some consider ancient ways of understanding things to be primitive or superstitious. Yet many ancient cultures described a surprisingly advanced vocabulary for describing patterns that they noted in both the external and internal realities of our life and in nature and the world around us. If we observe how the ancient folks spoke of thunder and lightning, it becomes more apparent how their mythological imaginations, so to speak, helped them to navigate life's paths. In every religious tradition in the ancient Near East, the elements of lightning and thunder are described in similar fashion as instruments for conveying the voice of the highest deity. It's a common thread in many religious traditions. In our own faith tradition, we found the words that we read from Job just a little bit earlier, just a few minutes ago. God's voice being intimately connected with the thunder and lightning and the events in, in the world around us. Why are thunder and lightning so commonly depicted as describing the voice of the divine? The conventional assumption has long been that primitive cultures invented such myths to explain the origin of storms. The purpose was not to explain where the thunder and lightning came from. The purpose was to explain where the voice of God comes from. And more important, how it comes to us often through intuition. When the ancients spoke of the deity of God flashing lightning and chasing it with claps of thunder. They meant that the voice of the divine often comes through those momentary moments of illusion, of flashes of intuition or awareness. And it triggers sensations within all of us and there's something like a reverberation within our soul as we begin to hear the voice of God. Thunder can do that, can it? Kind of rattle the window panes in your house and shake the floor a little bit and reverberate inside of you. We have two dogs that live in our house that I inherited from my children. And uh, one of them can sleep through any kind of storm, but the other one, last night, between 1 and one thirty or so, I was sitting on the floor holding her, trying to wrap her in a blanket, and she was shaking so bad it was just pitiful. <laughs> it's almost like she could sense the thunder. She could hear it in Mississippi and knew it was coming this way. And uh, she was terrified. Still thinking about the gift of being thunderstruck, about lightning and thunder in the voice of God. Psalm 29. We read that from the hymnal just a moment ago with your help. And I want to look at that now for just a little bit. The central theme of that psalm is the voice of the Lord. That is the thunder that accompanies a severe Mediterranean thunderstorm. Seven times the voice of the Lord is referred to. No doubt this psalm praises the coming and the appearance of God. And the thunderstorm probably in the early autumn season when the rains were returning. 
One suggested outline of the psalm goes like this. The glory of God, Gloria and Excelsis in the first two verses, and then the gathering of the storm in verses three and four, the shattering onslaught of the storm in verses five and six, the fury, power of the storm through verse seven, and then the passing of the storm in verses eight and nine. Beautiful description of this force of nature. And then in verses 10 and 11, the peace and the calm that follows the storm. I know the old saying is, there's a calm before the storm. But in this psalmist viewpoint of things, there was a calm and a peace that came after the storm had subsided. In the opening of the psalm, there's a threefold praise ascription there ascribed to the Lord. Although it's the heavenly beings who are called on to praise God, no doubt this psalmist was thinking of the worship that took place in the temple in Jerusalem, praising God in this thunderstorm, in this voice, tying it so closely to the things of God. The earthly worship of men and women tied to the worship of angelic beings in the high places, the heavenly hosts that we sing about in our doxologies and Gloria Patris, the voice of God rumbling over the sea. And gradually that cloud comes closer and closer and the storm draws near and the power of the storm is felt as it is approaching and described in such a beautiful way in this song. We mentioned a moment ago, we think how ignorant and unsophisticated these ancient people must have been. We sometimes say that, yet we too make a connection between divine activity and the weather. I know growing up as kids during a thunderstorm, we had that silly, crazy notion about God was back in the bowling alley again when it was thundering. And with lightning flashes, sometimes we say, Lord, that was a little too close. Can you back it off just a little bit? We, we tie weather into God's activity. And when weather's destructive, we talk about the powerful, forceful hand of God. Even if God did not cause the destruction. I don't believe God caused the destruction that we witnessed recently in Alabama and in other places, but we can't help but think about the power of God and the weather and the storms. And I can't help but believe that these ancient folks and this connection between the weather and God have something to teach us about the real and in reality. In the second stanza of the psalm, the violence of the storm, it moves from the coastal region. It rips at the structures and at the trees along the way. And it's jumping about like a calf or a wild ox, it's described. This psalmist had quite the vocabulary and imagination. Before the majesty and might of the divine, they skip in awe and fear. Lightning that flashes forth. And then he speaks of the trees, the cedars of Lebanon, those strong, mighty trees that were used in the construction of the temple. And that's with powerful images being twisted and broken and stripped of their bark. The ominous presence and power of God in the storm leaves nature battered and bruised and wounded. Yet all of those gathered in God's temple say glory. The response to the presence of God is described as a response of adoration, a response of praise lifted up in ancient worship gatherings. The psalmist concludes the psalm, first of all, with a confession that God sits enthroned, king and ruler above all forever. The violence of the storm is not seen as an unleashing of destructive powers, but as a bringing of the rainfall and life-giving Not something here to destroy us. The ancient people knew 
how badly they needed that rain and that their agriculture, their crops depended on it. And then the benediction that asked that God bring peace to all God's people. Such an amazing psalm to talk about nature and the forces of nature and things with which we can all identify. But at the same time to talk about our worship and our love of this powerful God. The psalm praises the presence and revelation of God, not just in nature, but in one of nature's most dramatic expressions in the storm. The storm delights in the the ruler, the writer delights in, in the storm because God's work is in evidence here. I wonder, or I wonder when I was thinking about all this, you remember when Elijah came out of the cave and stood on the shelf there before God and there was the still small voice. And I wonder if this psalmist would have responded to a still small voice or if this psalmist needed that powerful storm, that image, that power of God, the sound and the fury. Possibly he could have heard that voice either way. Regardless of the tone of God's voice, whether it's a silent whisper or the fury of a thunderstorm, there is always about the voice of God an accent of grace. That's how we know it's the voice of God. There is always an accent of grace. And when we've learned to detect that accent, I believe, we've learned to recognize the very voice of God. And we could go through scripture. We could spend the rest of this day talking about incidents where God's voice makes a difference. Whether it's in the storm or in the voice of Jesus of Nazareth. The voice said, let it there be. And creation came into being. The voice spoke from the burning bush. And Moses paid attention. The voice spoke in the temple and the 12-year-old boy Samuel heard it. And the old priest Eli had to remind him, no, I'm not calling you son, it's the voice of God. Listen, a strong voice, a voice that in the person of Jesus would calm the angry waves and tell the ocean, you can come this far. And that's it, no farther. A voice of hope. A voice that spoke to John when he was in exile on the island of Patmos and reminded him that God was on the throne. A New Testament thunderstruck, and let's see if we can, can bring it in with this. Actually, a lightning struck story found in Acts chapter 9, the story of the conversion of the Apostle Paul. He was known as Saul at the time. Later, he would use his Greek name, Paul. He was on the road to Damascus so that he might arrest the Christians in this place, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground. He heard the voice of Jesus. It's my understanding that along this stretch of road, this Damascus road, is one of the most common sites for lightning strikes in that part of the world. A light from heaven flashed around Paul. I've no doubt that it was a flash of lightning and that there was the accompanying thunder. And at that time, Paul's life was happening in the dark wood. But thank God he was able to receive the dark wood gift of being thunderstruck. And his life was changed for better forever. So how is it with us? Can we recall any times in our own life when we've been thunderstruck? Did it change us for the better? Has it changed us forever? Amen.